The time has finally come for you to learn how to study the Bible. Never been done before, never to be repeated again. This podcast shows you how to study the Bible. Turn back now, remain biblically illiterate. Proceed and have your life changed by the Bible. The choice is yours. All right, people, let's get to it. I'm Reverend Ryan, a deacon in the Anglican Church in North America, and I'm in the process of becoming a priest. But enough about me. Let's get to why we're actually here. We are studying Jonah 1, 4 through 16, or 3. I'm going to go back to verse 3. Jonah 1, 4 through 16, with some references back to verse 3. So before we get right into the text, we need a couple reminders. Jonah is embedded within what we call the 12 prophets or the minor prophets. This is once again a reference to the length and not to the significance. And then we have the fact that as I've driven this point home over and over, both episodes one and two and now in three, that Jonah, Micah, and Nahum share an interest in God's attributes as given in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. And that's from Jack M. Sasson's Anchor Bible on Jonah, which I'm going to read this. The Lord passed before him, being Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And there the quote stops in Jonah. So for those of you who are like, well, let's just finish the thing. And, you know, we got to get we got to get all the anger out, you know, blah, blah, blah. Because the rest of the verse talks about. "Mm, Let me just finish it. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? So there are angry people out there who want to continue to be angry in life. And so they're like, yeah, let's just focus on the rest of this. Why are you excluding that? We, in this podcast, are excluding it because the author excludes it. And what I mean by the author excludes it is that the author of Jonah excludes the rest of verse 7, Exodus 34, 7. Also, as a good reminder... Within the Masoretic text, which if you listen to the intro podcast, if you haven't, please do. It's a whole lot, but listen to it. The Masoretic text sounds singular, but it's actually plural. It's not a single text, just like we have our Bible today. And then also the Septuagint, the Tanakh of Judaism, the Talmud. Within these various texts, the 12 prophets as a whole is considered one book. So it starts off, in all of these, it starts off with Hosea and ends with Malachi, the 12 prophets, right? So they're known as the minor prophets as well. And again, like I said earlier, minor prophets is just a reference to their length and not their significance. I think it was Augustine who brought that up, or Tertullian? I don't know. It was early on. The point being that this is one book we're reading, or rather Jonah is one part of one book, that's reading. And think about the macro view when interpreting Jonah. This is why it's very important to understand. 
Because without understanding the context in which Jonah is set, you're going to misunderstand the purpose of Jonah as a whole. And so Hosea starts out with Yahweh presenting himself as Israel's husband and seeking a divorce with Israel. And how does Malachi put it? Malachi has Yahweh declaring that Yahweh hates divorce. And so sandwiched in between all of this, is, uh, between Hosea and Malachi, we find Jonah, Micah, and Nahum, and their common emphasis, no, the common emphasis of Yahweh's mercy. So we need to understand what Jonah, Micah, and Nahum are doing, even though we're only focusing on Jonah here. We need to understand what Jonah is doing in the midst of a book that starts and ends with divorce, right? God's divorcing Israel. God hates divorce. And in between, we have three books, three sections, three acts, three scenes of one large book that end up declaring that God is merciful. Not only merciful to the Israelites, but merciful to Nineveh to the sailors we're going to read about here soon. Even merciful to Jonah, a disobedient prophet. Okay, so in the Septuagint, the next point, right? In the Septuagint and in the Masoretic text, there's a different book order that results in a different sequence of emphases or sequences of emphases. But in the Masoretic text and in the Septuagint, Jonah, Micah, and Nahum are always placed together. So what I'm saying is when you look at the 12 prophets, uh, you know, depending on the original manuscripts that you're looking at, uh, how they were grouped together, sometimes things aren't always in the same order between Hosea and Malachi. However, in all our copies, I mean, unless I'm missing something out there, which I don't think I am, but, you know, there's a whole bunch to read. In the 12 prophets, in the original languages of, of Hebrew and then in the copies in Greek, Jonah, Micah, and Nahum are always placed together. That is to say that you cannot interpret Jonah apart from Micah and Nahum and the other way around and all those other combinations. You must interpret Jonah alongside Micah and Nahum. Otherwise, you're not going to understand Jonah. And in like manner, you must interpret Jonah, Micah, and Nahum inside the larger book of the 12 prophets. This is how you study the Bible. Do not. Depart from it. Another thing to remember is that understanding the context in which, the, you know, this is the canonical context, right? And canon, once again, for those of you who, who maybe have forgotten or don't know, canon is just the Bible, the books of the Bible. Canon, canonical. Those are the words used to just say the books of the Bible. So when you're understanding or when you're trying to interpret uh, Jonah, at the canonical level, and you're realizing that it's talking about mercy, grace, compassion, kindness, forgiveness, forgiveness of transgression, well, forgiveness of transgression, iniquity, and sin. You have to consider the audience to whom this is written. If it's written to an uh, an, an audience that's in exile, or if it's written to an audience that's in post and uh, post-exilic society, like building the second temple time frame. Ezra, Nehemiah, so on and so forth. This is very important for them to hear. Because think about it. If you're in exile, you're in exile for various reasons. Not letting the land rest and committing adultery, also known as idolatry. That's how God sees it. 
And so they're hearing this story in exile, if indeed they're in exile, and they're hearing about a God who is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, full of compassion, forgiving transgression, iniquity, and sin. And they're thinking to themselves that if Yahweh can have mercy towards Jonah, the intentionally disobedient prophet, and towards the sailors, and towards Nineveh, then don't you think that God will have mercy on us? Imagine them saying that, like, hold on a second. If he's forgiving of them, isn't he going to be forgiving of us? If we turn from our deeds, we're in exile right now. If we turn from our deeds, won't he be forgiving of us? Or if it's written to a post-exilic audience, they can, for example, rest assured that if they don't go back into idolatry, and if they do let the land rest, then guess what? God is forgiving, patient, and all these other things. Lastly, Jonah is part of the Bible of the early church. This is important to understand because this is all they had to read in order to get to know Yahweh through Jesus. This is what Paul used to prove that Jesus was the Christ. And, and frankly, this is also what Jesus used. This is all he had to read, right? This is the Bible that Jesus held in his hands. In fact, that's a quote from somebody I'm going to get to in here in a moment. And this is what the church based their lives off of. I know this is a hard thing to understand, but, but when people were being persecuted for their faith in various ways, they turned to Jonah. Do you understand that? They turned to Malachi, and they based their lives off of what was written in Malachi to get to know Yahweh, to get to know Jesus, to know how to respond, and then how to live going forward. Did I say the same thing twice? Either way, you get the point. What I'm saying to you is that as we study Jonah, and we're about to get into that, we must know and understand and study diligently what the church had, the early church, the first century church had as their only option to get to know Jesus through the scriptures. Do you understand what I'm saying? This was their only way to get to know Jesus. I'm saying this because we neglect Genesis through Malachi. And so often we, we neglect the 12. We also neglect the major prophets. Maybe we'll read what we call the historical books because people, you know, I don't even need to go into all that. The point is that, the, that Genesis through Malachi was the Bible of the early church. It's all they had. So there's this guy named Charles A. Blanchard, born in 1848, moved on to the next life in 1925. He agrees with me and he makes this point. And I'm going to read, read to you guys a couple lengthy quotes, but from, from his book that I can't remember at the moment, and I'm sure I have it here somewhere. But he was connected with the College of the Church, the College Church of Wheaton in Illinois. He was part of the faculty of Wheaton College. Wheaton College is in Wheaton, and you have to understand that their PhD program is so highly respected and so ultra-exclusive that they only take six students a year. Now, I don't know what their PhD program was like back in 1900, and I mean 1900, but he was involved with um, Wheaton College for 45 years. I don't know how long he was on faculty, whatever. You get my point? But like, the point is that it's a well-respected school. This guy's no joke. He was the director of, Nas of, of the National Christian Association, National Christian Association, the president of the Chicago Hebrew Mission, a director of the Chicago Tract Society. You guys know what tracts are, right? You hand them out. 
an honorary vice president of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and a counselor of the African Inland Mission. Uh, I'm bringing all this stuff up to say that you don't become that kind of Christian leader by being ignorant. And Blanchard says the same thing I do. His book is called The Old Testament Gospel, A Prophet's Message to Men Today. So let me read you a couple quotes. And, you know, quotes, they don't read well, they 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 read well. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? When you're reading in this context, but when you're reading in the head, they, they sound right. But it's not natural speaking, but just try to listen well. The book of Jonah, this is the quote, starting on page 23 to page 24. The book of Jonah is not only interesting because it is a gospel, because it contains an evangel, but it is interesting to us further because it is a part of the only Bible which Jesus ever knew. Those who speak lightly of the Old Testament, who say that the New Testament is quite sufficient for us now, probably have not thought much of the fact that this book is the only Bible that Jesus ever held in his holy hands. The roles of the law, the roles of the prophets, and the roles of the Psalms were in synagogues. They were in the synagogue at Nazareth. Some were all of them. Jesus heard them read when he was a little boy. He was so familiar with the topics treated that when he was 12 years old, being in the temple at Jerusalem, he listened to the doctors, that is the doctors of you know the Jewish faith, and asked them questions. And men were astonished at his understanding and his answers. Now the New Testament, and I, I include the word now, okay, so he just says the New Testament gives an account of Jesus' life on earth. He's what, Let me jump in here real quick. He's talking to you right now about what the purpose of the New Testament is. The New Testament gives an account of Jesus' life on earth, the founding of the churches, the letters to the churches, think Paul's epistles, or even Revelation, 1 John, 1 Peter, so on and so forth, and the revelation which furnishes light for the last days, these days in which we live. But this book was not begun until years after Jesus had been crucified, dead, and buried, risen, and ascended to be in the heavens. Blanchard continues, I like to speak of the Old Testament as Jesus' Bible. Now, I've been saying this. This is me here jumping into the quote. I've been saying this for a while, but obviously I'm not the first person to say this. Uh, this book that I'm quoting, the Old Testament Gospel, is from 1918, I believe, and it's not worth trying to grab at this moment. But, but this is no new news that I'm telling you guys. And yet it seems to be new news. when It's like light bulbs going off in people's heads when I bring this stuff up. So the, the quote continues, when he, being Jesus, said, search the scriptures, he was saying to the disciples, search the Old Testament. Undoubtedly, if the New Testament had been written, he would have told them to search that, but it was not written. So he told them to search the Bible, which he himself searched, in which he himself was trained. Okay, end of quote for now. So he's saying that Jesus was trained in what we call the Old Testament, what they called, well, what we call that they called the Bible. Let me give you one more long quote because it's totally worth it. Blanchard continues, The outstanding fact in the book of Jonah is seldom even named. A large number of comparatively unimportant matters are dealt with by students. But the great fundamental truth which looms up from the first to the last of this wonderful book is almost never mentioned. 
At least this is the truth so far as my own hearing and reading have enabled me to judge. What is the great mountain fact revealed in this book? It is the fact that God loved Nineveh. Now what was Nineveh? One of the old world capitals so full of vices, cruelties, and crimes that its story cannot be read in decent society without expurgation and long silences. This vicious, loathsome capital knew nothing about God. That is, the true God. It was filled with follies, gods of one kind and another that men had invented, just as men invent gods now for the idolatrous temples which they erect in Boston, Chicago, and San Francisco. Of course, he writes San Francisco. But imagine, this is me jumping in again, right? Imagine, in 1918, he's writing about how horrible San Francisco is. And now it's 2023, and I don't even need to get into it because you guys already know. Back to the quote. They, the, the people at Nineveh, did not think about him, but he thought about them. They did not care for him, but he cared for them. And calling upon one of his young prophets, and the, the, the quote continues, but you get the point here. What we have here, according to Blanchard, is that the good news is found in what we erroneously call the, New Te- the Old Testament. Blanchard goes on to talk about John 3.16 and how the same thing that's in John 3.16 is in Jonah. Now listen to me. We, we know John 3.16. I was at Bible study this morning with a, with a group of people and I was explaining to them that, that John 3.16 is, you know, for God so loved the world, so on and so forth. Actually, no. Yeah, yeah, that's what it says. I was, anyway. That's a continuation of Old English. King James English. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we translate it, God loved the world so much. And he does love the world so much. But it's Old English. And so what it actually says is, God loved the world in this way. So I, I gave the example this morning because we just so happen to be going through John today. Um, if somebody says, well, how do you do this? And then you show somebody and right before you show somebody how you do whatever it is, you say like so, and then you go and you do it. That's how the word so is being used in John three sixteen. In other words, this is the way that God loved the cosmos by giving up his son, so on and so forth. But that's, this is the point I'm trying to drive home in the podcast, of which Jonah, Micah, and Nahum are also trying to drive home through Exodus 34, 6 through 7. That God loved the world in this way, or rather loves the world in this way, where sailors cry out to him and he answers, where Jonah disobeys intentionally and he has mercy, where Nineveh cries out to him and he answers. Yes, Exodus 34, 6 through 7 is correct when it says Yahweh, Yahweh, the a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Okay, so one more point before we get into the text. So I was at Denver Seminary just the other day checking out some books. And I'm standing there in front of the shelves, 
looking for some books on Jonah. And you know what's kind of funny to me? Is that there were just a few books on Jonah. Now, this is Denver Seminary, and they, ha- they only have so much, you know. They don't have all the books written about Jonah. But comparatively speaking, there was nothing on Jonah or the Twelve as a whole. I mean, there is, but it's, it's just one small section compared to what's on Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. You get the point, right? It's like they, it's like we, it's like Christianity forgot that when Jesus or Paul or Peter wanted to prove that Jesus was the Christ, they did so by using the law and the prophets. And when I say they and we in Christianity, I'm talking about the authors first of all. It's like authors forgot that everything that we are coming out of, that our, that our faith is based upon, is Genesis through Malachi. And we spend all this time writing about the New Testament. But they forget that when the Bereans searched the scriptures to find out whether or not Paul was telling the truth, they went to what we erroneously call the Old Testament. So let me just sum it up. Simply put, you guys, if you do not properly understand Genesis through Malachi, then you do not properly understand what you're reading in the New Testament at all. And now on to the text. So we're going to read 1, 4 through 16, and I guess I'll just read the whole thing real quick, because some some of you may be driving. But the Lord, but Yahweh, so remember, he runs away, he pays the fare, he goes down to the boat. But Yahweh hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, us, will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from, and what is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you've done? Remember that part from Dumb and Dumber? Anyway, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. I bet he was sounding like Eeyore when he said that. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, 
and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. Okay, so what happened? Crazy storm. They find out who done it. They tossed him over. Yahweh is appeased, and the sailors offer a sacrifice. Is that all? Actually, there's something, some really interesting things happening here. So you guys remember that this is written at a time in which there was an oral culture. Now, obviously, it's written, but it's read aloud to a group of people. So what we have going on in 1-4 is a little bit of humor that is only really noticed in Hebrew. So uh, Sasson's translation of 1-4 is, Yahweh, however, hurled such furious winds towards the sea that a powerful storm raged upon it. The ship, even the ship expected itself to crack up. Now, he doesn't say even the ship, but he just says the ship expected itself to crack up. But that's the inflection of the voice. So imagine the, 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 author, the author, the narrator, the person reading this aloud in oral culture. The Lord, however, hurled such a furious wind toward the sea that a powerful storm raged upon it. And it was so bad that even the ship expected itself to crack up. It was one of those things where the author is actually making a little joke because the ship becomes personified in Hebrew. But it's only noticed. I don't know why any, why people don't translate it like that, but Sasson, uh, Sasson notes it on, I don't know what page, I can't remember, but then so does Nagalski. Nagalski, there's this commentary series, uh, New, International, New International Commentary on the Old Testament. And in his book that he does, or books rather, he does the books of Joel, Obadiah, and Jonah. And on page 329, he makes the same observation, and it's, it's quite obvious. And, and this is the thing, guys. This ship now has thoughts. And the funny thing is, so Sasson gets into this academic discussion and basically says that there's no consensus on why the ship is being personified. So actually, let me correct myself here. He talks about there's no consensus, but everybody is, the, the consensus is that, that the ship is indeed personified. All of a sudden, it's a living, breathing being. And nobody knows why. And so, when, you know, when I'm reading Sass, I'm like, well, it's obvious. This is an oral culture. It's meant to be humorous. It's meant to be read before an audience, and the audience is supposed to be like, oh, that, yeah, that's kind of funny. I didn't expect that. It lightens the mood for just a moment before this, this story takes a shift. And Nagalski agrees with me in saying that this is literature, it's a fantastic story being told, it's humor thrown in. I thought that that was necessary to bring up because we have to remember that, you know, we don't, we don't need to go cross-eyed when we're studying the Bible. We need to let the Bible come alive, be caught up in the story, and understand that God is using humans. This is not inspiration 101, eyes roll back in the head, and, you know, boom, it's done. I'm probably going to say that every episode for some reason. I want you to understand that God uses artists in the arts to communicate his truths. And that's precisely what's going on in 1-4. Now let me read all of 1-5, because 1-5 we're going we're to spend some time discussing. 
Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his god, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down, down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the ESV says that each of the mariners cried out to his god. Sasson translated, ter- translated it terrified. The sailors appealed each to his own god, open parentheses, S, close parentheses. So one of those things where you can say god slash gods. The Septuagint has them appealing to an individual god. Uh, rather, uh, individuals appealing to a god. And the Vulgate has them appealing to many gods. The Targum, which is an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew, changes it to this. The sailors became frightened, and they prayed each man according to his fear. Now, there's this discussion about what that really means, what the Targum is trying to say. But I think a great way to understand what the Targum is saying is from an ancient Near Eastern perspective, where what you feared was their god. And so it's an idiom, which, by the way, that's what I was trying to use, idiom, in the first episode. I called it a euphemism. I meant idiom. But here... I believe, and I might be wrong on this, okay, so don't take it as whatever, you know, truth, but think about an ancient Near Eastern perspective. What they fear is their God, and so the Targum is just speaking in an idiomatic way because everybody is talking about this this thing, and so the thing is Elohim, the generic word for God, there, there are a bunch of generic words for God or gods. It's plural, that's what the I am is, but oddly enough, Elohim can be singular at the same time. And so context really determines how to translate it. The point being that they were all crying out to some divine power, whether it's plural or singular. But the interesting part is that after they start hurling the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them, Jonah goes down, it says in verse 5, into the inner part of the ship. And, And it says he had lain down and was fast asleep. So the Septuagint has Jonah seeing the storm and then going down. That's not what the Masoretic text has, but okay, that's important to understand. We're going to get to that in a moment. The church fathers, for whatever reason, and you know what, I can't recall which ones they were at this time. Some church fathers, um, they commented on this act as a betraying evil conscience as as oh my goodness the church fathers commented on this act as betraying evil conscience and deep remorse that is it was obvious jonah had done something wrong and now he knows and so he's going to go down and go to sleep the problem is that as i stated in episode one the church fathers really didn't know hebrew i mean if you were a student in your master divinity and you got an a all year long you graduate with a better understanding of Hebrew than the church fathers. I bring this up because I am an Anglo-Catholic. It's all part of the Holy Catholic faith, right? That is what has been received at all times in all places from all Christians, always. Universal. And, and you know, the Catholic faiths, Roman, Eastern, Anglo, we rely a lot on the church fathers, But I say to you, be careful when reading the church fathers, because they don't know everything, and they especially didn't know Hebrew. Now, Greek, yes, okay. 
But we need to understand that they really didn't get this. I talked about Emmanuel Tove, the textual critic. Even, even he had said that, listen, the church fathers just didn't know what they were talking about when it came to Hebrew. So just because they say something, let me say it like this. If they're commenting on the Old Testament, then we need to be cautious of what they say and not blindly follow what they're saying because they don't really grasp Hebrew. And therefore, those who are commenting on the Old Testament are most of the time going off the Septuagint. And Jerome, I think, he, he, Jerome had some type of what we presuppose to be the original Hebrew, uh, an original Hebrew copy, but he didn't really know it. So getting back to this this uh, deep sleep that the church fathers really got wrong, right? Jonah goes down and goes into sleep. The church fathers were like, oh, this is obviously him knowing he did something wrong. There's something really interesting going on here. Deep sleep doesn't... Have you ever wondered how in the world Jonah went down and just started falling asleep in the midst of a crazy storm? Surely you have. What is actually going on is that Jonah is going into a visionary state. Don't believe me? Well, hold on a second. Just listen. Let's find out. Genesis 2.21, this is Adam, right? The whole rib, Eve coming from his side. I don't think I need to go back there and read it. So the Septuagint uses ecstasis to translate deep sleep. And this is the same word that's used in Genesis 15, 12, which is our next reference, and we'll get to that in a moment, and Acts 10, 10, and 11, 5. So if you're familiar with those passages, and even actually in uh, uh, Acts 22, 17, where Paul says he falls into a trance and receives a vision with a warning that results in safety. In Acts 10, 10, Peter falls into a trance, and what does he see? The blanket being let down from the heavens with all kinds of things in it and God saying, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And he's like, no, I've never done. And then 11.5 is him recounting about how he falls into a trance. So in Acts 10.10, 11.5, twenty-two seventeen, and in Genesis 15.12 with Abraham, which we'll get into in a moment, the Septuagint uses the word that, con that has connotations of vision, a visionary state where the human is now in communication with the divine, in the divine realm, through a vision, so on and so forth. That's how the Septuagint addresses what's going on in Genesis 2, 21, with Adam and Eve and the rib or the side, because it can be translated either way. Let me restate that for you. Basically, what that means is the authors of the of the Septuagint understood Adam as somebody who was receiving a vision and a message from the divine realm. The ancient inspired interpretation is not that God actually made Eve from a rib taken out of Adam. Now this is no new interpretation. For those of you who are in the Catholic faith and you are hearing me say this and you're like, oh, here we go. Ryan is uh, going off. Reverend Ryan, here we go. Doesn't It's just him and his Bible. Well, hold on a second. St. Ephraim, the Syrian, was proclaimed a doctor of the church and revered in the same manner as St. Athanasius, who also, by the way, didn't know Hebrew, right? Who later becomes a bishop of Alexandria. Athanasius was present as a deacon in the Council of Nicaea. 
So Saint Ephraim is revered on the same same you know standard or plane as them, as well as Saint Gregory, who is a bishop of Nicaea, and Saint John Chrysostom. That word's always hard for me. The Archbishop of Constantinople. So Saint Ephraim of Syria or the Syrian is revered on the same level as these guys. He's a doctor of the church, and he even said that what was going on in Genesis two twenty one, because they are reading the Septuagint, is a vision happening in his sleep not that this was ancient surgery Athanasius understood this to be visionary language and Augustine specifically said quote with the host of angels and entering into the sanctuary of God we and then I'm jumping here he understood that what Adam understood and then quote what was finally to come in other words Augustine understood it to be this visionary thing to be directly related to prophecy what I'm saying here is that this deep sleep in one five, where Jonah goes down into the inner part of the ship and lays down and was fast asleep, and we're always wondering, like, how in the world is he doing it? It's because he's not actually asleep. He's entering into a trance-like state where he's having a vision and is communicating with Yahweh. The same thing goes to Genesis 15.12. Let me just turn there real quick. You guys know this. This is where the Lord basically, you know, he tells them, hey, listen, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a blessing. Look out at the stars. Count them if you can. So on and so forth. So Genesis 15, 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep, same as in Jonah, fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then Yahweh said to Abram, and so on and so forth. The point is that every single time this happens, it's also in Daniel 8, 18 through 19. Let me read that one. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. You have to understand here in the context, he's falling into a deep sleep, but he's speaking with a divine being. And then Daniel 10, 7 through 10. Where is it at? Um, then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Same thing. And there's a divine being, being speaking to him. So the Septuagint uses visionary language in 1.5 called laying down. Actually, you know what? I'm getting ahead of myself. The point here is that in Genesis, in Acts, in Daniel, all of these deep sleep references are references where somebody is entering into a trance-like state and they're communicating with the divine being. Jonah is not asleep. Jonah is not passed out. He's communicating with Yahweh. And also this, this laying down part, the, the Septuagint also uses visionary language in one five. In First Samuel three, where you guys know that, remember Samuel is lying in the in the basically their pre-first temple area, the tabernacle, and every time he goes and lays down, he has Yahweh's crying out to him, Samuel, and he thinks it's Eli. The point is that it's quite clear the interpretation, the ancient interpretation, and John Walton in um, what's his book, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, Genesis two through three, in the Human Origins debate. Jonas, John H. Walton says that in all usages, this sleep blocks all perception in the human realm. 
And so Walton is quoting a bunch of people. He's quoting the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament. He's quoting Michael V. Fox's uh, Proverbs 10 through 31 when it comes to the Anchor Bible. And those books are quoting a bunch of Semitic experts. And everybody's united in saying that this is definitely a vision. We're not hurt. We don't get to actually hear what the vision is. But the point is, Jonah's not passed out. So the next verse, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper, arise, call out to your God, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The captain is obviously saying, let's get up, let's start praying, come on, hurry up. We can't be just sitting here doing nothing with our lives, we're about to die. And then continuing in verse 7, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Verse 8. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? I want to focus on this one section that is, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. So I referred to Nagowski a moment ago, James D. Nagowski, in the books of Joel, Obadiah, and Jonah. He observes that the Biblica Hebraica Studegarten, which is the common text of which all seminary students read, uh, learn Hebrew from, and you know, people read all the time. And going back to the quote, the BHS and others have suggested that the phrase on whose account this evil has happened to us should be understood as a gloss because several Greek manuscripts indicate it was added Nevertheless, Mer 88 agrees with the Masoretic text, while 4Q76 has the same shorter form that appears in 1.7. So what Nogowski is actually saying here is that while the, the Biblica Hebraica Studegarten, and again, guys, it's just the Hebrew Bible text that we read um, as students around the globe, I guess. Basically, that the BHS is suggesting to us that 1.8, where it says, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us, is a comment. That's what the gloss is, right? When he said a gloss because several Greek manuscripts indicate, indicate that it was added. He's saying that, that there's a side note in Greek manuscripts that say that that portion of 1.8 should not actually be in there. So, so somewhere in the notes in the Septuagint, you have the Septuagint translators saying, we don't think that this is original. And so the BHS is saying to modern day students, you should ignore this portion of 1.8 that says, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. The reason is because, I mean, listen to 1.7. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. The point is that like, it's very redundant, it's very repetitive. And Nagowski is making the point that Mer 88, which is a Dead Sea Scroll, uh, which actually agrees with the Man Masoretic text. Now let's go back to the introductory, introductory podcast episode. The Dead Sea Scrolls provide clarity on the Masoretic text. 
and the Masoretic text is not singular. But the Dead Sea Scrolls came before the Masoretic text, and they were in some way, shape, and form the original of what the scribes of the Masoretic text, or the MT, were, co were copying. So Nagalski is saying, listen, academia, relax a little bit, because we have evidence that the Dead Sea Scrolls prove that this is not a commentary, that, that this comment in the margins from the Septuagint translators should be ignored. That is to say that 1.8 is original to the text. This is actually really important to understand, and I'm going to emphasize why here in a moment. But let me add another thing to it. So Robert I. Vashals, in his book, The Old Testament Canon in the Old Testament Church, the internal rationale for the Old Testament or for Old Testament canonicity. He talks about how the scribes of the Masoretic text absolutely refuse to change the text no matter what they come across, whether or not they think a word should be deleted. So there's this point uh, that Vashholz talks about how um, some of the scribes think that Aaron, right, the original priest, should not, his name was inserted, shouldn't be allowed to be in there. And so they put dots above each letter of Aaron's name and other, other instances in the MT where they think it shouldn't actually be in there. And that's their way of saying, we don't think that these words or this letter should be in here. But the scribes for thousands of years, up until the printing press, over a thousand years up until the printing press, even if they disagreed with it, they never changed the text. These dudes were so, uh, I don't know what the word is, gung-ho? I don't know. They were just so, we have to do this. They were so dedicated to copying things precisely that even when they disagreed, they didn't delete something. They suggested in the margins, but they would copy it no matter whether they thought it was original, an error, or whatever. You know, what's really interesting about this is that the Yod and the Vav look very similar. And so the Yod is a Y, the Vav is a W. And at times, the Vav can just be a tiny straight line um, that's like kind of like a superscript. Kind of like a superscript, except they write from right to left. But a Vav can look like a superscript 1. A Yod can look like a superscript 7, but not diagonal, just straight, you know, straight... Um, yeah, that should make it pretty simple, right? Straight to the right, straight down a little bit, but it's superscript style. And sometimes the Yod and the Vav can look exactly the same. And so the, the scribes of the Masoretic text, they have an opportunity to make it clear whether or not this is a Yod or a Vav by making it look exactly like a Yod and less like a Vav, more like a Y and less like a W, more like a 7 and less like a one. Does that make sense? But regardless of the fact that they felt they could provide clarity, they refused to do it. That is to say that if it should be a Y or looking like a seven, they left it looking like a one, even though they knew it should be a Y or looking like a seven, because they were dedicated to the craft. My point here is that you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls informed the Masoretic text scribes who were copying the Hebrew. And they provide notes in the margins, but they never change the text. 
So Vashols is saying because of Mer 88, the Dead Sea Scroll, it gives evidence that what the Masoretic text says today, what the BHS is disagreeing with, is actually of ancient origin. And the reason that this was a concern for the Septuagint scribes is because 1.8 was entirely redundant. Okay, it, it, they said, let's cast lots so we can figure out who's, whose prop, uh, fault this is. Lots fall on Jonah. And then the next line says that they go up to Jonah and say, tell us, Jonah, whose fault is this? So the Septuagint translators are like, well, why is this happening? And they start putting markings in some manuscripts that say, we don't think this is original. But I'm telling you guys that the Dead Sea Scrolls go far back. The Masoretic text guys, even if they want to disagree with it, they copy it precisely, and then they put margin notes, and they don't have any margin notes in this. And why does this matter? Why does this redundancy happen? Well, before I get there, let me take a sip of my tea. I'll tell you what it is, but I don't know what I'm drinking. Okay. The reason this redundancy matters is because we have right here literature. Let me speak to a different audience for a second who hopefully is listening. For you guys who are in the academy, a way to work through this issue and to understand is to understand that this is actually literature. This includes the Septuagint translators that made the notes for forever. I'm, I'm speaking to them even though they're dead now or they've moved on. But I'm also speaking to the, the BHS editors. Literature tells us a visual story in an oral culture, or at least this does, right? And again, I talked to you guys about, um, oh man, what are those things called? Movies, right? You write them. Um, screenplays. Screenplays start with words, and then they make a storyboard, and then they bring it to life visually, and we see it on the TV, whatever, you know. But it starts with words, and those words communicate feelings, emotions, all kinds of things. The same thing is happening in Jonah. So let's go back to this. I read it kind of dull earlier on purpose so that I could read it again in a new light. Now let me try to read it how I think the original person who would be standing up before the congregation would be reading it. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Now, now before I go even further, any further, let me just say this. Can you just see the people? They're all squatting down. They're casting lots while they're in the rain. You know, the rain's beating down on them. The wind is wailing. The hair is in their faces. And the answer is plain because they cast the lots and somehow, some way, boom, Jonah. They knew it was Jonah. I mean, imagine any scary movie that you've watched where there's this scary pagan scene, right? And you've got the music. You've got them doing their, I don't know, seance or, or sacrifice or whatever it is, right? And they're casting a lot and the answer's there. But this time they're in the boat and the wind and the waves the, and the rain and everything. And there were all these rough sailors, and, and they could see the lot has been cast, and they know it's Jonah. And they're all rough and tough, right? And imagine all the rough sailors in unison, and let's just say they're huge too, right? In unison, they all turn their heads and look at Jonah. And Jonah's sitting there over on the other side of the boat, like, oh man, I just been found out. 
And then they ask him sarcastically, Yeah, tell us, whose fault is this? Do you see what I'm saying? They find out whose fault it is. And it's like they look over and sarcastically, they look at him knowing full well whose it was. And they ask the person, it's like, okay, <laughs> I don't have a dog. But, you know, let's think about those dog videos. You know, people on YouTube, let's just say the dog's name is John. John, who tore up the toilet paper? John, was it you, John? And John's looking away, right? And looking bashful. You guys have seen these animal forms. Or how about the one video where there's like four or five golden retrievers of some kind of dog sitting in a row. And the owner's recording it and asking who did this. And the other dogs tell on the dog who did it. And the dog who did it starts getting mad at the other dogs. We know who did it. We as the audience know that this is Jonah's fault. The sailors find out it's Jonah's fault. And this redundancy in verse 7, sorry, verse 8, is them in a scene, in a movie, movie, turning and saying, yeah, Jonah, whose fault is this? I mean, can you see the scene? And then imagine these guys, right? They're slowly rising. They're struggling to keep their balance in this crazy storm. And they come over to Jonah and they grab him, like just by the collar of the shirt. You know, they're lifting him up. And one guy leans in in verse 8 and says, what is your occupation? And another guy chimes in like, oh, and where do you come from? And another guy, what is your country? And then the dumb, the big dumb one was like, yeah, uh, what people are you? You know, like that's the second, the same question asked twice. And they all just look over at him like, what do you, they give him the look like I just asked, he just asked that. Why are you, why are you always so dumb? This is literature. This is a literary masterpiece. And we need to keep this stuff in mind when we're reading the scriptures and look at Jonah's response imagine this guys imagine a scene out of the movie right where Jonah they they're all surrounding him they've got him by the the collar of the shirt and they're holding him up and he's just like you know your shoulders are up and he's like scary he's got the face and he raises up his hands to kind of like calm down calm down you know how you do that or you're telling somebody to slow down you kind of just put your hands down a couple times like bounce up and down imagine Jonah being like I'm a Hebrew, and, you know, I, I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. You know, he kind of, like, mumbles that as he turns his head away. It's, it's, it's a scene right out of a movie. It's hilarious. And they're like, what was that? Uh, Yahweh, the God who made the sea and the dry land. This is satire. This is irony. The people are thinking, oh my goodness. And that's what it says, verse 10. Because then they realize, they go from being angry to being, as it says in verse 10, exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, what is this that you have done? Remember that scene in the movie Dumb and Dumber? Do you realize what you've done? Right, the, 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 the bus drives off and they run and they chase after it. That's what they're having, that realization. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh because he has told him. We need to learn to study the scriptures as literature. Not just literature, okay? Inspired and other things as well. But when you study the Bible, you have to understand that this is a story that's being told. 
And we have to process it like this. What is the author doing? Why is the author doing that? How is the author, you know, uh, uh, relating this portion to what's coming up in the future, right? We, we know this about movies. When, when something happens in the movie 30, uh, uh, an hour in, this stuff that happened 10 minutes in made sense now. Oh, that's why. And that's what the author does. I'm telling you guys this stuff because this is how, this is, remember, learn to study the Bible.org. This is how we are to study the Bible, to understand what the author is doing, where they're going. So let's go on to something else that's interesting. This is going to be the last section of our podcast, episode three. In this story, in the rest of the story, and I'm not going to read through it, but basically, if we go back and we look at 1, 4 through, actually, no, if you just look at 1, 1 through 16, you see that there's two types of movements, upward and downward. Okay, so the prophet Jonah goes down to Joppa in 1, 3, and then he goes down into the boat in 1, 4, and where does he go next? down into the inner part of the ship. That's on purpose, okay? Notice also that while down isn't continued to be used uh, throughout the rest of, you know, 1, 1 through 16, Jonah is still thrown from the boat down into the sea. I'm sure you guys have realized that by now. And then next week's episode, when we get to chapter 2, we're going to find out once again that Jonah's descent doesn't even stop there once he gets tossed into the sea, but he goes down into the belly of Sheol, as he says. And then in his imprecatory psalm, which I'll get to and I'll define that next week, he even says that I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And that's in 2.6. So Jonah is being presented, ironically, who's the prophet of Yahweh, as going down, 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 down. Should I play, uh, what's that song, Sugar, We're Going Down Singing? I bet you it'll get kicked off of Spotify if I even put a sample in there. And Apple Podcasts. But what else is happening with the movement? The foreigners, in various ways, are actually rising up to Yahweh. So let's look at one one. Nineveh's evil has come up before Yahweh. And while that sounds bad, let's just think about the different movements here for a moment. That's all I'm saying. And then in 1.6, the captain tells Jonah to arise to call out to his God, just as they were doing. To have, they were hoping to have their prayers rise to their gods. Then in 1.7, lots are cast, right? And a divine message is received from Yahweh. Certainly. Communication with the divine being is an upward movement. And then in 1.14 and 15, the prayers of the sailors are heard by Yahweh because the wind and, uh, and the actions, right, too. The wind and the waves and everything stops because they toss Jonah overboard. So their prayers and their actions rise up to Yahweh just as Nineveh's evil rises up before Yahweh. And then finally in 1.16, in one way, they do make an ascent by offering sacrifices and making vows to Yahweh. Now, Academia says in many places that these guys are not con converting exclusively to Yahwehism, but are instead adding Yahweh to their pantheon. 
that frankly I find to be irrelevant and just ultimately what the author doesn't really give a care about. What the author cares to communicate is a downward and upward movement in a very upside down story. If you're an ancient Near Eastern Jew, you're going to expect the prophet to obey. But here, the sailors are actually the ones obeying. Here we have the prayers of the sailors being heard. Here we have the sailors offering right sacrifices to Yahweh. And here we have the sailors having the proper fear of Yahweh that Jonah himself actually should be having, but he doesn't. What does this make us think about? Well, I'll tell you what it makes me think about. It makes me think about the fact that we as a whole, society as a whole, Christians as a whole especially, we need to check ourselves when we think that God doesn't hear non-Christians unless they first come to Jesus. Do I need to say that again? We need to check ourselves. I think some of you need to hear this. We need to check ourselves when we think that God does not hear non-Christians unless they first come to Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? So often we think that people are so dirty, so rotten, so horrible, so disgusting that we're like the Pharisee who's like, God, I thank you that you didn't make me a sinner like the other dude. Meanwhile, the other dude's over there saying, Lord, I'm good for nothing. Have mercy on me. And God hears his prayer. We so often think, we so often think that God doesn't hear non-Christians until they come to Jesus first. God won't answer a prayer. God won't help them out. you got to come to Jesus first. We're so quick to, co- to quote Psalm 711, and I really do disagree with people. I've, sa- I've said this pl- blatantly um, to people whenever they've brought it up. Uh, Psalm 711 in various translations says that God is angry with the wicked every day. You guys, first of all, when you're quoting this, realize that you're quoting poetry, and poetry is, you guessed it, poetry. It's not meant to be taken literally. Maybe parts of it are, but I'm not a poet. Parts of it are. Possibly. But poetry, you have to sit back and think about and meditate on. We forget they forget the people who are like, ah, oh, blah, 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 God's angry at you all the time. You forget what the what the scriptures actually say. Second Corinthians five, I'm gonna say this all the time until you guys finally get it. Second Corinthians five says that all people everywhere are at peace with God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand what the scriptures are saying? This book presents an upside-down worldview where God hears the Ninevites and the sailors and Jonah who's disobeying him deliberately. And what does he do? He has grace and mercy for everybody in the story. He has grace and mercy for you and he has grace and mercy for me. Glory be to God. Okay, so I'm done with studying the text for today. But I want to ask you some questions, and I want to bring up a couple more points. How do we, and by we, I mean you guys, and by you guys, I mean the ones who fall into the category and what I'm about to say. How do we approach non-Christians? Is it like Paul? Or is it like Jonathan Edwards and Billy Graham? 
Remember Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and Billy Graham saying whatever he's saying. I don't know if you guys realize this, and I, I don't have too much time to get into everything. Actually, I guess I have all the time I want to put towards a podcast, don't I? Listen, Paul, his approach, let me back up. For years, I spoke to people about Jesus. I'm talking about practically every single one of my patients when I was in the Navy working on teeth. Conversation after conversation, captive audience, talking to them about Jesus. And I was getting practically no results. And I, and I asked the Lord, I'm like, Lord, why do I not receive the results that Paul receives? Now, you have to understand that I never got an actual answer from the Lord insofar as I could tell, at least in the way he normally answers me. But what I did receive was a, was a different view on what Paul was doing. I began to notice that in Acts, Paul's approach to non-Christians was very different than his approach to Christians, quote-unquote, to the Jews. So in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are sent out to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And every time they go off to speak with the Gentiles, they go to one place that they can't help but go to. They go to the synagogues. That is to say that they go to the Jews first before going to the Gentiles. And he speaks in a very normal, quote-unquote, Christian manner to the churched. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let's just, let's just use today's language. Paul goes to the churched people of his day, the ones who already believe in Yahweh, who already believe in what we call the Trinity. Like I told you guys, I believe that was the first or second episode. I can't remember. Look at this. I'm only three, three, three episodes in and I'm already lost. <laughs> but the point being, Paul goes and he talks about Jesus, Messiah, King, uh, King David, Son of David, Sacrifice, Cross, all this other stuff, right? But then when he goes to the Gentiles, he doesn't say the name of Jesus. He doesn't talk about sin. He doesn't talk about the cross. He doesn't talk about repentance in the way that you think he talks about repentance. I'm telling you the truth, and I'm challenging you right now to read what I'm about to show you or at least tell you, and then assess whether or not your worldview is in line with Paul through the Spirit and his worldview. In Acts 14, you have at Lystra, Paul and Barnabas, who, who through God do a healing, and then the people say, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. That's Acts 14, 11. Barnabas, they called Zeus, verse 12, and Paul, Hermes, because he was a chief speaker, blah, blah, blah. And they try to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. And what do they say? Acts 14, 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We, are my, we also are men of like nature with you. Listen closely, guys. And we bring you good news that, and here's the good news right here, that is gospel. In case you're misunderstanding what's being said, Paul says, here's the gospel that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed 
all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. Uh Uh-oh, here we go. Prosperity gospel from Paul, verse 17. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven. Oh, no. And fruitful seasons. Oh, no. And satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Listen, I'm being sarcastic because we're so against what, what people call the prosperity gospel. But Paul's presentation of his God in the midst of gods who enslaved peoples and forced the peoples to feed them, you have here a God who is good and satisfies their hearts with food and gladness. It's the reversal. And Paul says that he he did not leave himself, that is God, did not leave God's own self without witness but witness to himself, not by Jesus. It doesn't say that. It says by giving them rains from heaven. And Paul calls this the gospel. The good news is that they should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the sea and the earth and all that is in them. You guys, do you hear the name of Jesus in there? I can't hear you. Do you hear cross, sacrifice, sin, any of that kind of stuff? Because it's not in there. And that's not the only place. Turn the page. And then turn the page again. (laughs) To chapter 16. Paul and the Philippian jailer and Silas. uh, 16.25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. The prisoners were listening. I'm going to come back to that, because only the prisoners were listening. I'm emphasizing that one more time. The prisoners were listening. Nobody else. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke... Okay, he was sleeping. He wasn't listening. When the jailer woke, this is uh, Acts 16.27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Where in the world did the message of salvation come from in this? Does anybody know? Like, why, why is he all of a sudden talking about salvation? He was asleep. He didn't hear anything about salvation. We can't argue from silence. And all of a sudden, he's like, what must I do to be saved? Where did that come from? Verse 31. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, here is the sole, sole example, only example, where Paul mentions the name of Jesus in the book of Acts to a Gentile. And it's in a very different context, you guys. You see, Roman centurions, they had to believe in the Lord Caesar, the Son of God. Oh, does that sound familiar to you? Believe in the Lord Jesus, the Son of God. You have to understand that when when Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus, 
the Roman centurion, the Roman guard, rather, knows exactly, the jailer, knows exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, and that the jailer must give his allegiance to Jesus and not to Lord Caesar. Read Matthew W. Bates's book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, or Paul McKnight's um, Jesus and something gospel. I can't remember at this moment. King, the King Jesus Gospel by Paul McKnight. Um, and, and anything that Bishop N.T. Wright talks about. This is a common discussion in the academic realm. And for whatever reason, it just doesn't disseminate to the people. What's going on, people? Well, you know what? Martin Luther King Jr., the wise poet, once said that it is a, an individual's responsibility to educate themselves. Not their teachers, not the parents. And yes, okay, when you, when you have kids, yeah, for a certain while. But as an adult, it is your responsibility to get off your butt, study your scriptures, do your extra biblical reading, that is reading about the Bible that isn't the Bible, understanding the context of the Roman times, the Greco-Roman times, the ancient Near Eastern times, and getting a better understanding. It's your responsibility to figure this out. If this is your first time hearing this and you've grown up in the church, then you've been just glossing over Acts your whole life, not paying attention. And not paying attention so poorly or just doing such a poor job of paying attention that guess what? You have these dudes saying something totally different out there in the streets than what Paul and Barnabas and Silas are saying. Okay, last example. Acts 17. Paul at the Areopagus. Now, listen. In Acts 17, 18, I'll just read it real quick. The author records this. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, being Paul, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, the author is saying that that's what Paul's doing, but we cannot argue from silence. This is how you study the Bible. So when, when Paul actually begins to speak to the people at the Areopagus in Athens, he alludes to Jesus, but he doesn't mention his name. So you guys need to read Acts 17, 22 through 31. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but he says, you know, the God who made everything, he does live in temples, he made from one man every nation of mankind, that they, this is verse 27, that they should, he appoints their boundaries in verse 26, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So many of you guys out there, generally speaking, people, okay, if it doesn't pertain to you, then just move on, ignore this part. So many of you guys out there will say God is far from you because you're a dirty, rotten sinner. But Paul says through the Spirit, we are actually, or God, God is actually not far from us. We are indeed his offspring. That's right. We are the same. We are the same. We are the same. What's that song? Red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. We are the same. There is no longer male nor female, Jew nor Greek, bondservant or freedman. 
were the same. So then in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we not ought to, or we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and imagination. These times or the times of ignorance God overlooked. You got, do you hear that? Do you hear what Paul's saying? The times of ignorance. He's talking about idolatry. Idolatry, which they sacrifice. And what does it say? The times of ignorance God overlooked. And you're like, well, what about Israel? What about it? Well, what about Israel? You tell me. They were priests of God. They were a priestly nation sacrificing to other gods. So he handles his bride because it's considered adultery. Idolatry is adultery. You want to go cheat on me? You go right ahead, but, but we're done. That's what it's talking about. But when it comes to the idolatry of the nations, I mean, you know, at a certain point with child sacrifice, God ends it. But in verse 30, Acts 17, 30, it says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, which N.T. Wright and Matthew Bates and, and uh, Scott McKnight all say is covenantal loyalty. Because he has fixed a day, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So, a couple things on this last little bit here: the word repent. There's so much scholarly information. If you haven't heard it, it's because you haven't sought it out to read it. There's so much scholarly information out there from experts, you guys, that talks about how. The people that repent actually means to change your allegiance. It's not just to turn and do a 180. Think about the context in which Paul is saying that. To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul is saying here that his God has overlooked ignorance, his God has made everything, and his God has appointed every man to seek him. And he commands all people to come follow him and pledge their allegiance to him. And he has assured, given assured assurance to all humans that they should do this by raising a man from the dead. Do you, do you hear him say the name Jesus? Yes, he alludes to Jesus. But does he say Jesus? No, he alludes to Jesus. I said a lot to ask you the question, how are you approaching non-Christians? Is it like Paul, full of grace and mercy, presenting Yahweh as a God merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin? Or are you like Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God, or Billy Graham? I don't have time to get into this, but hell was not created for humans. Hell was not created for humans. Read the Bible. It's in there. Matthew 25, 41. That's a quote from First Enoch. Enoch was, First Enoch is quoted throughout the New Testament. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. Jesus came, amongst other reasons, to save humanity from the fate of the gods, from the fate of his enemies in the spiritual realm. 
Christ came, amongst other reasons, to exercise patience, mercy, steadfast love. He forgave iniquity, transgression, and sin, and now we are at peace. So in conclusion, for real this time, this stuff is important to remember because the audience of Jonah is an audience that is either in exile and needs to hear that good message, that good news, this gospel of Jonah, or they're post-exilic and need to hear the good news, the gospel of Jonah, that if they change their ways and they don't go back into idolatry, they will remain out of exile. And for us, scripture was written for us, though not to us, so that we might be encouraged and have hope. Is Jonah good news to you, or is it not good news? Is Jonah gospel that you have a loving, patient, kind, generous, merciful God who desires to bless you and fill your heart with gladness? Yes, God does want you to be happy. It's in Acts and it's in Ecclesiastes. That is Old and New Testament. It's in the whole Bible. Is Jonah good news to you? And lastly, that's the author's point. We are to understand Jonah and this whole storm scene through the lens of a merciful God who hears the prayers of people who don't give a care about him and he forgives them and has mercy on them and his disobedient uh, children like the prophet Jonah. This is the way you study the Bible, you guys. Do not depart from it. See ya.